see what happens. We just open the floor and let it flow. Today, it's whatever comes up with our radio roundtable. Let the chips fall where they may. Welcome to our radio roundtable with higher education consultant Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to another edition of More Perfect Union. Today, our power panel of pundits, was that enough alliteration, is here to talk about UBI. What is that? What, what's UBI? It's universal basic income. Andrew Yang discussed it at length during his campaign, and it has actually been around far longer than we realized. The trail of UBI by various names, actually goes back some centuries. And with that, most recently in 2016, the Swedish government actually put it on the ballot and it was voted down 75 to 25. So it, it suffered a, a round defeat. But it raises the question, particularly in these times of COVID, where we have provided paycheck protection programs, We've provided uh, additional uh, support for unemployment and people who are suffering through these times. And all of that is seen as good. But what if it was a steady state condition? And that's our topic today. I'm Peter Jay. With me today, our ever illustrious panel, Dr. Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and our able representative, Jeff Roy. Good morning to all who wishes to jump in. Good morning. Good morning. And, uh, uh, and uh, even though our listeners can't see, you all look wonderful today. Uh, let me start with the concept that uh, universal basic income uh, actually may take a lot of different forms. Uh, for example, subsidies to rent and mortgages could be seen, uh, could be deemed supplemental income. And even though it's temporary, uh, it still comes across as something that is exposed to the entire population based upon eligibility requirements. So I, I believe that Yang in his proposal had something very similar. That is, if you had a certain level of income, a certain number of members in your household, then you would be eligible for uh, a, an income supplement based upon what we would look at as a ground floor to keep our citizens out of poverty and sheltered and fed uh, as just basic minimums. Now, the question becomes, do we already have these kinds of systems in place, but we don't call them universal basic income. For example, we have the SNAP program. We have the housing assistance programs. We have the uh, programs for Social Security 
I think in, in our pre-meeting, for example, Jeff brought that up and I'll let him uh, explain how that might even be viewed as universal basic income. And then we have all of the supplemental health kinds of things that happen, Medicare, Medicaid. And on top of that, we have these incidental kinds of programs, uh, and Natalia can speak to this, which is the idea that when we have a universal need for health care, that suddenly the government can pull out all the stops and we can provide for free vaccination uh, to all of our citizens. We thank uh, them for that. Uh, absolutely. So I'm not sure that the idea of universal basic income is anathema to our folks. I think it's a matter of something you said again uh, in our prior discussion, Pete, which is uh, marketing and labeling. I want to jump in a little bit on that point. So the word universal is pretty critical here because, as Michael said, we do have a lot of money going in to um, address things like poverty and uh, food insecurity and housing instability. My sister, who I'm visiting, actually, I'm calling in from California, is a professor at Berkeley in their public policy school and looks at things like uh, public management. You know, how do we manage programs that are, you know, like SNAP? And she has told me that around 20% to 40% in some cases of eligible Americans never get access to the money that they have and deserve because of the bureaucracy, because they need to apply, because they need to, um, you know, prove that they are eligible because it is so cumbersome. So something that we don't often talk about in terms of the universal basic um, income discussion is, you know, who is right now bearing the burden of proof? And it's often on the individual. You're already poor, you're already working three jobs, and you have to fill out all these forms. So something about that, an idea is pretty transformational that you would take away that burden. And I would argue that Biden's child tax credit is universal basic income, because it has taken away that. I received a check in the mail for every three of my kids. That also took away some of the bureaucracy. You know, when you have a means test, when you're trying to say, you know, are you eligible, are you not? You have an entire infrastructure of bureaucrats who are trying to manage this. Universal basic income is simple. It basically says everybody, you know, with the child tax credit, I think it's everybody under 400,000 dollars per household gets it. Uh, you'll receive it in the mail, even if you don't ask for it. It's a it's a very um, new way of thinking about who carries the burden of paperwork. And I would say, Jeff, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, paperwork is the work of government and it's, it's tiring. And it is a burden that is not one we should ignore in this conversation. You bring up an interesting point because of the fact that what we're going through right now with uh, the mortgage crisis and renters crisis is clearly a paperwork exercise where what I think only six to 7% of the allocated billions have actually been distributed over these many months. People are still waiting and a lot of them don't understand how to get access to it. And so the crisis is in part a process crisis because the money was actually there all along. It just hasn't been deployed. I don't want to stand here as the great defender of paperwork and bureaucracy, but... Um, oh, go ahead. I, it's fine. I, I, I will say uh, that without it, you kind of lose control over uh, where these funds go. And uh, if men were angels, uh, 
we wouldn't need this paperwork, but uh, government is constantly audited, constantly questioned about uh, what it's doing with taxpayer dollars. And we have a fiduciary obligation to make sure that every dime that is spent is accounted for and is getting to the appropriate place. And that's what leads to all of this uh, incredible paperwork, because, you know, you have the legislative branch, which says this is how you should spend the money. Then you have the executive branch, which actually spends the money and sometimes follows the uh, outline that the legislature sets, sometimes doesn't. And then uh, we have an auditor, which is a constitutional office in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that uh, goes and looks at all of these uh, expenditures and said, well, this in this instance, uh, uh, they did not follow the uh, legislative intent. In this uh, instance, we see fraud and abuse. And, um, you know, it's a it's a vicious cycle. So, you know, you need that because, uh, you know, there are people that that cheat. And uh, I will share with you that uh, I learned during the uh, pandemic that somebody had actually filed an unemployment claim in my name. And uh, because there was no uh, real paperwork requirement, uh, they were able to do it. Luckily, uh, some uh, when the unemployment office went to verify my alleged employment, uh, I get a call from the human resources officer and said, uh, Representative, uh, do you understand that you're not entitled to unemployment compensation? Uh, as a representative, I said, uh, clearly, I do understand that. Uh, I would not file a claim. She says, well, uh, I, I thought you were aware of that, but I just want you to know that somebody did file a claim in your name, which you know led me to then I had to go to all my credit agencies and I had to put holds on all of, uh, uh, all of those activities. So, you know, there are people out there trying to scam the government out of these uh, programs. So we have to watch everything that comes in and everything that goes out. Again, I'm not the great defender. I used to, uh, I used to have a um, high school teacher and we used to laugh about all the forms that folks had to fill out to do particular things in the school. Now I'm talking about activity that took place in the late seventies. If he were still alive today, and saw the paperwork that needed to be done to do things uh, in 2021, I think it would give him a heart attack because uh, it's just amazing how much additional paperwork. And I don't know how many of you have closed on a house and you go to your closing. I remember the first time I did a closing, I probably had to sign 10 pieces of paper. Now with all of the uh, litigation that has been involved, a, a closing is you're probably signing 50 or 60 pieces of paper. It's, mm -hmm. it's all mm -hmm. about that concept of accountability. Uh, and uh, good or bad, that's why it's there. You're right. It is 50 to 60. I just did a refinance last week. I counted. There you go. I was going to say to Jeff that I, I agree with you that we need accountability, but there is something beautiful about universal basic income in that it can simplify the process for most Americans. Because as you said, yeah, people will take advantage and there will be fraud, but there are also so many, many people who should be getting those benefits who are just unable to because they do not know how to fill out those forms. They do not have the time. And so you're, you're basically prioritizing minimizing fraud 
rather than minimize, maximizing eligible people from getting what they deserve. And so the universal basic income model, which is a little bit less cumbersome, like the child tax credit, uh, is appealing to me, is appealing to me at a time when I am aware uh, of, you know, countries across the world who have done experiments with what is called unconditional cash transfer programs. So, you know, 40 mm -hmm. years ago, it would be conditional. You send your kid to school, go to the doctor, you get a check in the mail. And now countries are experimenting with unconditional. So everybody in this town mm -hmm. gets a thousand dollars. And most results of such programs have shown tremendous benefits for child health, for maternal health, for just well-being in general. And, you know, if you put that into the context of what do we as a country want for our people, well-being is top of mind and a minimum amount of income so that you don't live in poverty to me is is sort of an obvious. Two points <laughs> I'd like to, to put in. Uh, first of all, in defense of Jeff's uh, discussion on paperwork, the news media tends to live at both ends of a bell curve. That is, there is the tisk tisking that goes on over the paperwork. There is equally on the other end of the bell curve, the tisk tisking that goes on over fraud. Um, that is, we hear about very, very large, very well-to-do companies collecting millions with respect to Triple P, which some of them gave back. And so, as you said, if, you know, if people were angels, it wouldn't be a problem. And so the question then comes, where's the balance? Are, are we finding an equal number of complaints and grievances on both sides of that curve? Yeah. Uh, Pete, can you uh, quickly, for those of us who don't remember, what is PPP again? It is the Paytech Paycheck Protection Program. Okay. And uh, uh, because there may be some listeners out there, including myself, who forgot what the PPP was. Uh, it was the idea that employers would receive monies. Right. They could use those monies to maintain their staff. And if they did so, if the staff was maintained through the bulk of the pandemic, that would be provided in the form of a loan that would then be forgiven because they kept people on their payrolls. Right. Uh, uh, through the pandemic. And, you know, and I will also propose, too, that there's a lot of disinformation around uh, what uh, I think Natalia's point is here in the States, because some of our most effective programs for the individual have very minimal kinds of paper requirements, and I'll name two. One is Social Security, uh, and the other is Medicare. Uh, I think the government does a stellar job in the administration of both of those programs, and yet the disinformation, some of it coming from politicians uh, and those who are just naysayers to start with, that the government doesn't do anything effectively or efficiently. And that's not true. Uh, I think to your point, Jeff, there are times when the government does a really good job of not only administering a program, but also uh, tracking down and the attempts to eliminate fraud. And I think those two programs are great examples of that. Now, that being said, I think there's something to uh, be learned from those countries that have, uh, whether they call it universal uh, income or whether they call it, uh, you know, programs to provide sustenance for families, whether it's housing, childcare, et cetera. And it, here, I, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I was over at 
uh, Franklin, uh, one of our Franklin uh, auto repair shops, Franklin Tire and Auto, which is right down the street from my house. And they're having a tough time trying to hire people. But the but their main concern is that many of the folks who they're trying to employ look at the salary and go, oh, goodness, I need more than that. And then on top of that, they're trying to provide some semblance of benefits. And it occurred to me that, well, I know one benefit that would just help small businesses tremendously, which would be universal health care. It would not only provide that particular benefit for every single citizen, but take it off the plate for small businesses as a benefit that they'd have to scrounge uh, around in terms of their profits to see if, uh, if we can afford it. Uh, and I think, that, as a matter of fact, back in the 50s, and I think I've said this on this program before, back in the 50s, there were uh, a bunch of Democrats who wanted to have universal health care at the behest of large corporations in this country, because they saw it as a benefit for them to take that, uh, that particular cost and expenditure off of their books. Uh, and it would help them with their collective bargaining. These were unionized shops. Much of the, uh, many of them were the auto industry. Uh, and yet at the time, there were people who said, ah, no, nah, we don't want to go down that route. Uh, our people don't want it. Um, and it's a government handout. That's when we started with this idea of trying to stop people from uh, advocating in their own best personal self-interest. Uh, and here we sit today uh, in 2021, uh, you know, some 70 years later. And we're still not at a place as a country where just basic benefits are like automatic that, you know, that you don't have to worry about housing and food and health care as staples. And you can then go into some of the other necessities of life, education, raising your children, uh, providing uh, social as well as uh, civic kinds of opportunities for your kids. Uh, and I'd love to know your reactions, folks, uh, you, you know, to this concept that universal uh, basic income really sets a foundation in my mind for life in this country as we know it. And I think it would help us advance a lot faster as an industrialized and modern technological uh, uh, society. Well, you know, one thing I would love to uh, see an examination and a study of what occurred during the pandemic. And, you know, our unemployment system was overwhelmed. And I would say uh, the large volume of constituent work that I did during the pandemic was helping people navigate through uh, the unemployment system to get a basic form of income so that right. they could feed their families, pay their bills, pay the mortgage, uh, and live. And, uh, you know, millions of claims were filed. And, uh, you know, we had to help people get through the bureaucracy because they were not getting their payments fast enough. And, uh, you know, we were largely able to help folks. We also heard from businesses who were forced to close down and 
uh, they were losing money and what could the government do? And that's where the, the PPP uh, money came into play. And we were able to get businesses up and running again, keeping people employed as best as they could. And uh, I look back at that time and I think, boy, it, it worked. It worked very well for many people. Uh, it worked so well that we collected in tax revenues far more than we had anticipated. So I don't know, you know what the uh, causation is for that excess tax revenue, but I would certainly like to see an investigation and a study to see if the universal basic income that we provided during those times of need uh, had the effect of allowing people to proceed with their lives, spend their money, and in turn allowed us to collect uh, tax revenues, which are needed to continue these programs. That's a, it's a fascinating series of events that occurred that I think uh, are deserving of study. The, the other point I'd like to uh, make, and uh, you know, it goes to the point that you raised, Michael, about uh, trying to find employees. And as I was preparing for the program today, I was thinking back to uh, Henry Ford and uh, his assembly line, and he being uh, a business person who said, I need to pay my employees a higher wage so that they can afford to uh, purchase the automobiles that I'm producing. I mean, that wasn't the main purpose of him increasing the wages, but he did uh, provide a wage that was double what most companies were paying uh, back in the day, 1912, 1914. Uh, and it turned out to be a real, a real profitable experiment by him because uh, his business took off. And people were making more money than uh, they could anywhere else. He was able to solve his labor shortage. Uh, he was able to get skilled workers because he was paying uh, a very decent wage. So I think back to that time, and I, uh, you know, I know I understand the times are different today, but it's certainly a model that we can uh, look back to. If people are paid a living wage, and uh, if they have the means they will spend their money in our economy and we will all benefit as a result. So uh, those are my two reactions uh, to what you uh, brought up, Michael. I would add, you know, being someone who is fascinated with the history of industry and technology, I, I looked at the, the Ford model and, and it ties into something interesting that Robert Reich observed. From about the time of uh, the Model T and Henry Ford, going all the way to the 1980s, there was this unwritten compact between manufacturing and labor, you know, lunch pail labor, where as productivity went up, uh, the workers' reward went up. And interestingly enough, starting with Ford, remember that he was the person who perfected the assembly line. The amount of labor required to make a Model T was approximately one third of what it was to manufacture any other car. So if the workers were receiving double their wages, 
they were actually being rewarded in some commensurate way. But Ford himself actually got a bigger reward because of his improved margins over his cost of goods. And now I, I, I think it was a win-win situation. He developed something. He gave some portion of that win to his staff. And he enjoyed the rest of his largesse for all of the management that he executed in terms of making the process more efficient. Now, that said, in the 1980s, all of that was abruptly disrupted mm -hmm. and very seriously so. And I think that gets us to the threshold of today's discussions. In 1980 and going forward from there, wages became flatlined. Mm -hmm. And when I say flatline, I mean flatline, not even cost of living, flatline. And what happened was productivity continued on its ever northeast march towards the good part of the graph. Mm -hmm. um, and so that radical departure in 1980 is predicated upon really three things. Number one, the commodification of computing. The personal computer and industrial computer came to the fore. Uh, also, the ability to communicate over grand distances and, you know, through fiber and satellites and also the ability to move labor into other countries, offshoring. Mm -hmm. All of that happened at the same time. So we, as what was then an island nation of labor, uh, which was enjoying an insular experience preserved by oceans, suddenly found ourselves competing with the entire world starting in that decade. And from that time forward, this, what can we call it, egalitarian equalization of labor value across the world. You know, now, you know, it used to be China and Japan. Now it's Vietnam and Africa. Um, what we're seeing is in the less and underdeveloped countries, labor is slowly rising up to catch up with us. Um, and so, we're having more and more difficulty differentiating ourselves in terms of the value of a person at work. That gets us to the threshold of UBI and its value. Now, I just put it out there for a moment, branding. You know, we've talked about UBI branding, universal basic income. Uh, it might be better spake as guaranteed basic income. If it's guaranteed basic income, it isn't quite universal now, is it? In other words, it is conditioned on some metric that, per Jeff's point and Natalia's point, should be easy to determine without a ton of paperwork. That is something that I would certainly like to analyze and actually seriously consider happening. For instance, I like the uh, child tax credit because it's easy. And the other thing I like about it is that it really benefits children. It benefits people early in life even if it is indirectly through their parents, through their family, the fact that the family unit is improved while it is a family unit with dependents, and that's a good thing. Um, so all in all, uh, this notion of branding universal basic income uh, and what goes with that, I think is something that needs to be readdressed because the reason it keeps failing is per its description. And if it was presented as something else, more thoughtfully and crafted in a way as Natalia described, you know, that doesn't require a lot of work, but has a lot of merit in terms of the way that it selects people. That would be a, an interesting uh, vector in the future. Well, before we shift over to uh, 
the branding. Let, uh, let me go back, Pete, to a point that you're, uh, you know, that you and Jeff made, um, you know, around labor. It was also around the 1980s too when there was another vector that started. Wages started to flatline. However, that was for labor. CEO salaries uh, at that point started to skyrocket. The differential between labor uh, and let's go back to Henry Ford. One of the things that Ford and all of the automakers, uh, there was an unwritten informal compact between labor and management that management had a relationship in terms of its compensation to the compensation of the worker. For example, you didn't see a CEO making more than two and a half times the salary of the highest labor person. Now you look at those salaries and the relationship between labor and management, and you will see salaries for and compensation for management that in some cases are 100 times, 200, 300, up to, in some industries, a thousand times more than the salary of their highest worker. My point is this. I think when we look at, now let's move to branding, because I think it's important for us that before we start to brand, that we make sure that everyone understands the definitions that we're talking about. And part of that definition has to be, what should the relationship, before we get to a brand, be between the compensation of your management team and the compensation of labor, given that variable of production? If, I'm, if the company is making a profit, should the laborer be a participant in that income of your profit? Before we jump to branding, I was going to just share that, you know, there has been some critique and I I don't know if I'm pro-UBI. I want to be explicit here that I think that there are a lot of pluses, but I think we can actually do it in a way that we would get it wrong. And one of the ways that we can do it wrong is if we replace, use UBI as a way to say, okay, everybody gets $10,000. And so we're taking away some of these other existing programs that are targeted to people who need them, like SNAP, you know, so I think some of the conversation has been a trade-off. You give everyone $10,000, you don't need to guarantee, um, say, some other housing because we've given you $10,000 already. And and I think it's important to say that $10,000 is not enough to live, you know, so that kind of conversation gets blurred. And I want to go back to what you were talking about, Michael, about healthcare, because as a public health expert and someone who has supported universal health coverage, I personally would go with that first. Like, let's guarantee people basic health care. I know that over 50%, I think that statistic is close to 60% of households who file for bankruptcy do so because of medical expenses. I know that since COVID, it has been 50% of people who have been affected by COVID say that they are worried and actually cannot pay their bills. I mean, this is dramatic for a country like ours, that your health your fear of your own health, your child getting sick, your parent getting sick would cause you to go into bankruptcy. So I don't know if UBI, I didn't want to talk about it because our conversations around UBI, but I would not want to derail that conversation of, you know, what do we want to guarantee people as a basic 
standard of living, you know, health is a human right versus this kind of conversation around UBI. I see it as a add-on, not as a trade-off. And I worry that some people are talking about it as a trade-off. So I just wanted to be clear there that I agree with Michael that, you know, universal health coverage is a must and we can get there. I think there is momentum. And, you know, I think there is an opportunity to get there before we even get to UBI. Let me throw another topic into the fold because it should not be ignored in this discussion. And uh, we used 1980 as a benchmark. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in in 1983, 20.1% of employed Americans were members of a union. By 2019, that share had decreased by roughly half to 10.3%. It should not go unnoticed that all of this has occurred in the context of a declining union membership. I I certainly recall growing up, and we can take it back to the auto industry because General Motors was one of the large employers in this area. And uh, you could graduate from high school and you could get a job at General Motors in Framingham and you could work there for 30 or 40 years and uh, you would have health coverage, you would have a, uh, a very good wage and at the end of your career there, you would uh, leave with a pension, which were all good things that we recognized <clears throat> that were helpful to succeeding in this economy. And, uh, you know, that plant closed, uh, like so many others around the country, jobs moved out uh, of the country. You know, the benefits that we looked at were whittled away. And there aren't many professions that are left today that will provide somebody uh, with a pension. And, you know, I would argue that a a pension is yet another form of a universal basic income because uh, it's at the end of your career and it was something that was negotiated as part of your union contract that, uh, you know, when you retire, you would get a certain income for the rest of your life. And, you know, and we also, I know we talked earlier in the show about, you know, how do we view social social security? Is that a, another model of a universal basic income? That was something that was started uh, back with, with FDR, recognizing that we, we could not l- allow our uh, elder uh, folks to go without some sort of a universal basic income. Sure, people pay into that. Employers pay into it. Employees pay into it. And some would argue that it's just a return on what I paid in. But if you actually do the numbers, you know the amount that you pay in is not equivalent to what you end up getting back uh, over your lifestyle, uh, over your lifetime. But, you know, these are things that uh, have become part of the fabric of life. And that, but at the same time, I'm still awestruck uh, with the declining union membership. And I, I view that as, as problematic. And uh, I wish we could get back to the days of, uh, of stronger unions. And, uh, you know, I was looking at uh, what happened at Amazon very recently thinking, okay, you know, people are complaining about poor work conditions and, uh, you know, uh, substandard wages and, you know, compare the salary of a, an average Amazon worker to that of Jeff Bezos. Uh, and it's, it's astonishing. And I thought it was a no-brainer that they would have a union vote at Amazon. 
but they voted it down. Uh, it's just incredible to me to, to see this. And I did not want that to go without being uh, on the docket as we're having this uh, discussion today. Yeah, and I think part of that discussion, uh, uh, you know, and I agree with you, Jeff, and I think, it, you know, the whole idea of labor and the structure of labor uh, is important to the conversation. And Bessemer, the Amazon plan in Bessemer, Alabama, and they're voting down the the union, I think, is another example of how misinformation, disinformation, and the fight against unionization uh, can lead to that kind of result because people are more, I guess, invested in the job than they are their self-interest in terms of protections. And in there are instances, too, I think, which fall right into this discussion where what's the ethical responsibility of the ownership of the company to its employees? Uh, should they try to quash the voice of the employees when the employee is simply trying to bring up uh, whether it's a working condition, benefit, life, uh, and how do we pursue a reasonable life when we don't have a salary to sustain uh, something uh, much more than the poverty level or slightly above the poverty level. And I think all of those questions go into any kind of uh, of income or basic income, uh, because I think the idea of what is a living wage becomes part of that baseline discussion too. And I totally agree with you, Natalia, that the first the first experiment in universal anything should be universal health care. Number one, I think we're good at it. No matter what some of the politicians say in terms of the inefficiency of government, I think the most, two of the most efficient programs that the government at the federal level runs are the Medicare program and the Social Security program. And I think to universalize the social, uh, the, uh, the social construct of of health insurance is the number one thing that we ought to do. Uh, I would amend that myself. And, and uh, I know that when you have a healthier society, uh, a whole bunch of other things really begin to work better. There are so many benefits that occur indirectly, secondarily from just having a society that knows that its basic health is always going to be there. So, uh, yeah, I think Social Security and Medicare are amazing programs. And maybe we will get to universal health care by expanding Medicare at some point. Uh, I would like to think it's just a matter of time. I think your point, Pete, about the benefits is really critical here. We often put price tags on, you know, the cost of this program is X. And it, and it sometimes it's shocking, shockingly big. But we don't say it also will save us all this money from the fact that people are not showing up to the emergency room really, really sick. And, you know, instead of having gotten $50 in preventative care, we're now spending $50,000 or, or even higher, $500,000 in that same person. So often we, we forget about what this investment early on, investment in children, investment in housing, investment in health really means for our economy. And, and Jeff already talked about, you know, tax benefit, you know, you spend, if you're not worried about saving that extra dollar or two for a rainy day, you will 
also invest in the economy, go out to restaurants, you know. So there are so many trickle-on benefits of guaranteeing people stability and safety that they don't need to be worried about day-to-day that we so often don't put a price tag to. And therefore, the cost of the program seems exorbitant, but we are actually paying at the other end anyways. Yeah, you know, I think- Just jump in on the, uh, the, I know this is not a universal health insurance show, but given the amount of time I spent in that space, I, I just want to bring up some of the arguments that, that, I, that I heard along the way. And I agree with you, uh, Michael, that uh, Medicare is a very well-run and efficiently run system. But I repeatedly heard from healthcare providers that would say that if I had to run my hospital, my emergency room, my surgical unit based on the rates that Medicare was paying, I'd be out of business very quickly. And, uh, you know, uh, constantly hearing we use, you know, you see that, uh, you know, private health insurance pays uh, much higher rates for the same services. uh, And we have to charge those rates to subsidize all of the Medicare payments that we're receiving. So there's going to have to be some, to, to move to this universal healthcare model, there's going to have to be some real push and pull with regard to what is the, what is the appropriate price point for uh, medical procedures. And uh, that's, that, to me, is where uh, we really stumble on uh, whether we can effectively introduce universal healthcare. I, I would go back to uh, letting the labor unions negotiate, um, you know, health insurance plans and premiums and all those rates. I'd rather have it uh, work in that arena. So, just you know, thought. Jeff, to be, to be intellectually honest, you hit the nail right on the head of a topic actually that I didn't expose. Albeit Medicare is one of the most efficient uh, and effective uh, programs that the government runs, It is also one of the most politically manipulated funds that the government runs. So your point is well taken. Uh, Albeit a system can run effectively, your point as to whether or not the rates that Medicare imposes upon the providers is a fair and equitable reimbursement for their salaries. Now, that is questionable. And I've heard that same argument from providers that I can't, I can't operate my business on what Medicare reimburses me. Uh, I've got a friend who's an ophthalmologist. He just retired. And uh, uh, I think uh, in his business, uh, over a third of his business was um, Medicare patients. So he dealt with older patients. He did surgery as well as the Uh, ongoing care for glaucoma, uh, for diabetes treatment of the eyes, uh, and all different types of surgery. And what he was constantly uh, bickering about was the fact that Medicare, without any input from them, would change their rates and always to his detriment. So uh, again, I want to be intellectually honest here. It's a well-run program. But the rates that 
they impose, and it is an imposition, they impose upon the providers uh, are across the board, not always equitable. I'd like to return back to something we were talking about a bit earlier. Um, and part of it is that uh, I, I mentioned in past programs that I used to do some work with one of the Washington think tanks about the fact that, and their basic premise with respect to governmental stability was this notion of how much the average person gets paid versus what we now call the the one percenters, the top tier. And they said that when that number rises somewhere well above 10 to one, things become unstable and revolution can take place. Now, in our case, revolution in its simplest form is really the vote, uh, the election process. You know, if we don't like the way things are, we get to change it every period. So, but now we've gotten to a point where it has been uh, gradually expanded, gradually expanded, as we pointed out earlier, with you know where the one percenters are and the insane amounts of money that people at the very top of the pyramid are making. And I wonder whether or not that equates at all with the general unrest that some politicians may in fact be mining in terms of populism. Uh, and I worry about the fact that some of what we've seen let's call it January 6th, is predicated on that underlying predicament. I mean, look, there is unrest in this nation, in this commonwealth, in our own community um, that is puzzling, is, is, the, is the word I'm going to use, because it's the same world, it's the same set of facts, but the observations of those facts are just uh, so divergent. And, you know, I actually uh, know that we've been here before, you know, we've, we've had a civil war, we've had debates on, uh, on all sides of many issues in this country, we have emerged. Uh, so I have confidence that we will emerge yet again. But, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, I'm going to go back to the simple thing uh, as vaccines, that we're, that we're having a debate over the effectiveness of vaccines. When it's clear, when you see the evidence that's out there, that the trouble that we're having today is because of people refusing to get vaccines. And it horrifies me to think that we have to instruct healthcare workers that you know you have to be vaccinated in order to treat people. I I would have thought that that would have been the last audience we had to uh, uh, convince along those lines. But you know these are these are just uh, debates that uh, I guess are part of the experiment in in self government. You know this is uh, this is how. Uh, we have been conducting business for 240 years. Um, I like the idea that we can get together and have civilized debates. Unfortunately, they're not always civilized. You know, I know in our community, we, uh, we are facing uh, an election for community representatives in uh, just two months from now. And uh, I'm certain that those types of debates uh, uh, will take place. And they may devolve to become uncivilized. I hope they don't. But, uh, you know, we have to prepare ourselves and be realistic. Uh, you know, and just questions like, 
universal basic income. You, you know, it's, it's a great idea. It's, uh, it seems to work in some places and that we can probably tweak it and make it work better. But then you're going to hear some people saying, why are we paying people to stay at home? Uh, and mm. we can't find people to work in our uh, shops because uh, they're getting paid too much money. It's more worth their while to sit at home and nobody wants to work. And why are we encouraging that bad behavior? Immediately, a topic like that devolves into uh, acrimony. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have the solution. My, um, I will just stick to my guns and speak my mind and, and try to uh, do my job as a state representative to the best of my ability and, and exercise my judgment. But I'm well aware that, uh, that, that people are out there and do not share my views. I try to be uh, empathic and, and understand what's going through their mind. But, you know, but it's hard to, it, it but it's hard to debate uh, when people aren't bringing facts to the table, I, you know, the, yeah, I call that arguing with zombies. Yeah. I, you know, the idea that people are staying home because the government's paying them more money, uh, uh, in many instances, uh, yeah, there may be a few of those there, but that's not, it's nowhere near the majority. It's not even a plurality. Um, uh, and there's little recognition of the economic realities. One, we are undergoing in this country, a massive reorganization of labor. People, because of the pandemic, are beginning to look at, do I want to go back into that job I had before? One, did it pay enough? Two, uh, can I improve my skills and upgrade myself? And that's happening. The enrollments for community colleges is at an all-time high uh, uh, this spring and going into this fall. Universities are seeing huge increases in the number of applicants, not just from the traditional 18-year-old, but from 25, 26, 30-year-olds, because people are beginning to realize as a result of the pandemic, you know, I was stuck in that waitress job and I really did not address my need to improve my lot in life. And now is a great opportunity to do that. And for people to espouse misinformation and disinformation and say, oh, it's because of the unemployment money that they were getting. And so let's take that away and force them back into those low paying jobs ignores the reality of what we ought to be looking at now. And I think we, let's go back to our original premise. Have we learned something from the pandemic respective to an infusion of money into the economy through individuals? And when you look at that, uh, Jeff, as you said, you know, there's something to be said for that. Our revenues, our tax revenues went up and yet we had more unemployment. Why? Because of what I was going to refer to earlier as what I will call and refer to as the trickle up effect. You put money into the hands of people who are going to spend it. And when they do, it starts to multiply the impact of those dollars, which is, I think, the real, the real corollary to the trickle down falsehoods. If we put money in the hands of people who are going to use it, it spreads throughout the community. And in some communities, we're talking three, five, and in some instances, seven or eightfold. So for every dollar that they spend, it's starting to generate jobs and it's starting to generate more. 
because people are feeling confident. And I think, as you said, Natalia, suddenly people feel as though, you know what? I'm not worried about my bill. Hey, let's get a movie for the kids. I'm not worried about my bills. Let's eat out. All right, let's get a whole big family packet from Burger King. I'm not having to worry about whether or not I can pay my electric bill. Okay, let's get a streaming service and stuff so we can entertain ourselves as a family. And with that comes, again, economic stability, like, again, something we've, we have not seen in this country in years. Uh, so it needs to be analyzed. It needs to be studied. And I'll get off my soapbox now. Because, uh, Jeff, uh, you know, tell those people, bring me some facts about what you're talking about, and then we'll have a discussion. Until then and stuff, keep your personal opinions to yourself. I want to end by sort of sharing. Let me give an amen to that before you go on. So amen <laughs> to that, Michael. Amen to, I mean, I, I want to sort of end by saying that I have faith in people and in our humanity, that people really do want to live well in society and community. I don't believe people want to be lazy, want to stay home, don't want to work. I do believe that the bottom line is we are, um, you know, a group of people who we can and should prioritize as, you know, this is, we're not going to incentivize people to stay home. We're incentivizing people to live the healthy lives they all want to live. And I'm not suspicious of people taking advantage of me or our society or our systems, just because I think it is rare. The vast majority of Americans just want to live healthy lives in you know, the presence of others. So let me end by saying that I believe a lot of these systems will make it better for everyday Americans, and we should invest in them. And yes, there will be a few people who take advantage, but they are such an outlier that I'm not too concerned. And I'm going to um, end my thoughts with uh, some encouraging news that I've seen over the past uh, couple of weeks. Places like McDonald's and Walmart and Target announced just yesterday that they are going to uh, pay for college for their employees. That is such a remarkable transformation uh, that uh, I just I, I find it a, a beautiful uh, premise because it. It helps people help themselves. And, you know, it's a recognition of the value uh, of an education. And uh, it's companies uh, taking ownership and uh, stepping up to the plate. So, uh, I, you know, one to criticize, I say that this is a place where these uh, big companies and corporations deserve some kudos for, for doing the right thing. And I think those types of things uh, show some promise for the futures. All of that said, I think that we've covered an awful lot of ground this hour. So all three of you have basically delivered on the promise of punditry. Did I say that right? Anyway, that said, if you have an opinion on universal basic income or any of these programs that help people, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at info at franklin.tv. That is info at franklin.tv. For our More Perfect Roundtable, Jeff Roy, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Dr. Natalie Alinos, I am Peter J. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time as we continue our journey on a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.